The title of my message this morning is Financial Support for Ministers of the Gospel. If you're a first-time guest, maybe you haven't been to church in a long time, you're like, great, the one time I come to church, I knew it. Church is all about getting my money. They just want more, more, and more. Those of you who have been here any length of time, you'll know that I have rarely ever preached on this just because it is awkward for me. <laughs> There's a couple of things that are tough uh, to preach on. Number one, it's tough to preach on those tough doctrines of Scripture that there seems to be lots of debate over sometimes, you know. And so there's difficult portions of Scripture to understand, wouldn't you agree? There are just some things, so preaching some sermons, it's tough because the subject matter is very deep, very difficult. Then there's other messages that I struggle with preaching because, let's face it, I'm a human being just like you. And so sometimes I will preach a message, and yet I know that in my own life, I sometimes struggle to live it out. And so those are, those are challenging messages, but, 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 but this message is probably one of the toughest to preach, and so if it seems a little bit awkward, it's just because it is, because very rarely uh, should a pastor get up and preach on why preachers should be financially supported. And really, that's not even the exact application of this passage today. I find it so amazing how God works through a sermon planning calendar. I planned this series months and months ago, and I had no idea. I would like to think that it was my wisdom that foresaw when we would be studying this, but really it wasn't. It just happened to be this way. But it's interesting that we uh, come to this portion of Scripture right at the end of a focus on missions here in our church for this last month. And so the reason I think that's important is because Paul, who was writing the book of Corinthians, was a missionary. He was a church planter. And so if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 9, 1 Corinthians chapter number 9, and uh, today we're preaching on this topic of why the preacher should be paid. Um, like I said, I don't believe I've ever preached on this this specific in eight years that I've been your pastor, but we're working our way through this book of 1 Corinthians and uh, we've already learned Paul doesn't withhold pretty much any topics. He's not bashful. He's not shy. Uh, in case you wonder that, look back to 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 5. You'll find out Paul wasn't afraid to address certain topics. How many of you are thankful for people in your life that aren't bashful and aren't shy? Raise your hand. All right. Well, Paul was just like that. Um, he wasn't bashful. He wasn't shy. He was a straight shooter from what we can tell from the writings that, he, uh, that, 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 that the Lord gave to us. Oh, stop stuttering. You're so nervous. Anyway, and so this next subject that he's addressing is the subject being addressed based on what he was speaking about actually in chapter 8. Uh, what he was talking about in chapter 8. Now, we were in chapter 8 a long time ago, almost a month ago. So let's review a little bit here. Uh, the last time we were together, we looked at this topic. Am I allowed to do that? We talked about liberty in the Christian believer's life. And we talked about things that Truly, as a believer in Christ, there are great freedoms that God has afforded to us as we follow him by his spirit. And so we really summarized some of that study last time we were together in the book of Corinthians, where we said this, knowledge leads to freedom, but love may cause you to limit your freedom. And so while we have freedom, God's also given to us love for him and love for others. And there is this idea of love limiting freedom. You might be allowed to do a lot of things, but love limits it. 
I think of this by way of illustration, just by way of review. How many of you grew up with a governor on your car? Raise your hand. Anybody grew up with a governor on the car? Maybe I'm just that old. No, probably not. But anyway, a governor. And, and what does a governor do? It limits how fast you can go. Uh, the truth is, as a Christian, God's given you great freedom to go fast, to run into the fields of his grace, to serve him, to run the race set before you. But God also has placed upon our lives a limiter, so to speak. And that is the issue of love. And so I love this thought here from 1 Corinthians 8 that Paul was developing. He's saying, listen, I might be free to eat meat sacrificed idols because for me it's just meat. I'm, and, and it's a good deal on me. It, I, mean, I mean, you save money. But he said, I'm going to limit my freedom in front of another brother who that might, him seeing me do it, that might lead him back into idolatry. And so I don't want to do that because I love my brother. And so we are truly free. Uh, the greatest freedom for us is when we can love a person more than ourselves. When we can love another person more than ourselves, that's great freedom. Our liberty should never get in the way of love. Loving someone else unconditionally is the greatest liberty one can ever experience. Paul summed up 1 Corinthians chapter 8 by saying, If meat makes my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to sin or to offend. And so that within that context, Paul has set the topic in chapter 8. And now what Paul's going to do in chapter 9 is actually give an illustration further of this issue of love-limited liberty. Everybody say that phrase, love-limited liberty. One more time, love-limited liberty. Uh, that is so important for us as believers in Christ. And so Paul uh, starts here in ch chapter 9, and he's going to lay out his own personal life illustration of how he had great freedom to even expect financial support from the church of Corinth. But there was some situation going on in the city of Corinth, and I'm going to give to you possibly what it was, to where Paul did not receive financial support from them. They might say, but pastor, I thought the topic of your message is why you should support pastors. Well, yes and no. Today you're going to see that Paul had every right to expect that. He's going to establish that very clear. He's going to give five, maybe six, some would argue, reasons here in this passage of why um, it should be uh, okay for a minister to receive financial support from a church. But he says at the end of all that, while he establishes all the reasons for why he should expect it and why he's worthy of it, he then says, I'm not going to take it. And so the Corinthians had several questions for Paul on these issues. And, and as we've already mentioned, uh, questions such as marriage, singleness, Christian liberty. And so it's within this question that they had on Christian liberty that Paul gives a personal life illustration. Let me ask you a question real quick. What do you do for entertainment? What do you do for entertainment? Some of us can answer that easily. Yesterday, we were on our TV showing a lot more motion at a screen than we can on Sunday morning. And we were really excited, and we were entertained by our team winning. Not that that's not okay. It's okay to enjoy that. But what do you do for entertainment? Likely today, our entertainment centers around a screen, either a big screen or a little screen. And so we live in modern day technology, but ha ha have you ever asked the question, what did they do way back in the dark ages? We're not talking about the 1950s. We're talking about the first century. What did they do for entertainment back then? They didn't have devices. They didn't have screens. So what did they do for entertainment? Well, 
One of the main things that they did for entertainment back in those days is they would go to listen to public speakers, to orators or philosophers. And so you had Athens, which wasn't too far away from the city of Corinth, and actually between Athens and Corinth were some of the world's premier public speaking venues. Now, as you think about that, what the ancients loved to do is they loved to be entertained through intellect, through public speaking, through philosophy. For us today, we think of entertainment in the sphere of amusement. The word amusement means without thinking. You know, we like to just turn the TV on and disengage, right? Ah, meaning no, muse, meaning think. Yeah, we just like to be entertained. We don't really necessarily like to think in our entertainment. Um, and I can make some applications there too, anyway. But, but in modern entertainment, we don't want to have to think. But in previous cultures, before the media that we have today, entertainment was a part of thinking. They wanted their minds exercised. So for entertainment, they would pay, catch this, they would pay to go and listen to public speakers. Now, um, for public speakers, for orators, uh, there were several different ways that orators would gain their living. Number one, they would actually charge for their teaching. So they would actually charge a ticket price, so to speak. Now, be honest. How many speakers can you name off the top of your head that you would pay $20, $25, $50 just to go here speak? Well, pastor, of course you. No, probably not, right? I mean, you, you probably, I'm not going to draw a crowd of thousands of people as a public premier you know, speaker. But, but, but think about that. Um, back in these days, they would have to either charge an admission into the arena or wherever speaking they, uh, whatever speaking venue that they were at. Number two, they would ask for money from their listeners, somewhat like a love offering or some kind of support that way. Number three, they would depend upon a wealthy benefactor. Now, this one wasn't as common because if you had one single wealthy benefactor, what would be the danger if you were a public speaker and you had one single wealthy benefactor? If you got onto a topic that he or she didn't like, then they might try to silence your voice. Boy, that could really, we could really park and preach on that probably for the whole day too, couldn't we? There's a lot of that going on today with lobbyists in Washington. Deep pockets, wealthy benefactors who are controlling our politics rather than men and women who've been voted in office being able to speak their mind. So this one was actually quite rare, but this was another way, a wealthy benefactor. And, and we do see some instances of this even in the New Testament. We see Lydia, the seller of purple, who was very wealthy, who was a, a big helper to the beginning of a church there, and then also Aquila and Priscilla. And so we see some of this going on even in the New Testament, but that was more rare. And then finally, um, the, 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 the final way that an orator or philosopher back in that day could, could uh, earn income was they would actually work a separate job. They would work another job. And this was Paul. Um, Paul was what we call a tent maker, and literally that's what he did. He made tents. Now, we use that phrase today to just talk about how if someone's going to plant a church, they're a tent-making missionary. That means that they're going, they're getting a job there in that community where they hope to plant a church, and then they're going to build the church without expecting financial income from the church that they're planting. So Paul literally made tents. He would literally make tents at night, and then he would serve and build the church during the day. Of course, the difficulty with working another job is that you end up working two full-time jobs. Um, if you ever talk to ministers who try to work part-time in the church and then part-time somewhere else, you end up really working um, two almost full-time jobs because 
and just the nature of ministry and the nature of life. And so Paul did this for a majority of his life. He was a tent maker. And so what Paul's going to do here in this chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter number 9, is he's going to lay out the reason that he's a church leader. So he defends his role as a church leader. He talks about his apostleship. Then he defends his right to be paid, verses 4 through 6. Then Paul is going to list five reasons why ministers should be compensated. And then Paul at the end is going to say, and now here's why he's refusing to be paid. And I think that's an interesting connection for us and application. And so, um, first of all, let's see here what Paul does as he starts out this passage. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 3. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the zeal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord." Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. So Paul is saying here, God called me to this. It wasn't like I, and I don't know, I guess I need to state the obvious here. Uh, Most ministers aren't ministers because they looked at a list of jobs and said, Ooh, I want to be a minister because it looks like so much fun and people are going to always love you and there's never going to be any difficulty. That's not how it works, okay? Uh, I, I wasn't in high school. I, actually, I was in high school and, and uh, if, if God had not called me into ministry, I was planning to go to, yes, the Auburn University and I was going to study science. I love astronomy. Those of you who know, I talk about one of my hobbies, my passion of looking at the stars. I'm a space cadet. I wanted to go on a rocket into outer space and, and yeah, you know, I mean, wouldn't that be fun? And, but, but that's not what God had for me. Now, carnal me, that, that's what I had planned. I'm going to be on a rocket, man. <laughs> but then God called me to the greatest calling I could ever be a part of. And so Paul just starts out here by saying, ministers are called into this, just as he was. Now, I'm not an apostle, okay? There's a lot of confusion around that word. An apostle had to actually see Christ, see the resurrected Christ, be commissioned directly from Christ. And so um, Paul was in a unique category here. But the lesson here is that ministers aren't picking going into the ministry because necessarily it's a great profession and by the way if you have a minister who views it that way be very careful um, because that's just uh, a hireling and not a shepherd and so Paul defends his role as a church leader here and then secondly Paul defends his right to be paid And this is just some introduction here he says in verses four through six have not we power to eat and a drink basically he's saying do you expect me to go hungry Then he says, have we not power to lead about a sister or a wife? What what is Paul saying when he says that? He's saying um, the support of a minister should be such that it allows the wife to be involved in ministry with him and for him to be married and to be a part. I don't understand why there's religions who require their ministers to be celibate when you see how that's worked out. I mean, look at all the sexual abuse that's rampant in some major religious institutions today because they put this undue standard, uh, unreasonable standard on men to be celibate when very clearly Paul expected ministers to be married. He says, have not we power to lead about a sister or wife as well as other apostles and as the brethren of the Lord in Cephas? So that's talking about Peter. Evidently, Peter was married and he had a wife. 
Then he says in verse 6, Or I only and Barnabas have not we power to forbear working? What's Paul saying there? He's saying, so do you expect just me and Barnabas to continue to work a secular tent-making job while these other ministers of the gospel go taken care of? So Paul's kind of, uh, like I said, he wasn't bashful. He wasn't shy. He defends his calling as a minister of the gospel. Then he defends his right to be paid. Interesting. And then in verses 7 through 14, he lists five reasons why ministers should be compensated. Like I said, if this wasn't right here in 1 Corinthians 9, I'd be like, oh, okay, let's go to something else. But let's look at the word this morning, and I think you're going to find one of the great reasons why we just had a missions month here at Fairview. Let me just stop and say this very clearly. I am preaching today from a heart of gratitude and thankfulness this message. Fairview Baptist Church, in case you're not aware of the finances and how they work here, Fairview Baptist Church does a great job of taking care of your pastors. And I appreciate that so much. And uh, so this message is not meant to put pressure on you and say, oh, the church, no, no. This is really just because it's here in 1 Corinthians 9 and we were just in 1 Corinthians 8 and I'm sure in a couple weeks we'll be in 1 Corinthians 10, okay? But we're, we're preaching the whole counsel of God here and what I do want you to realize is that in a lot of places today, this isn't common. And in a lot of places, uh, ministers deal with this issue. And so uh, I hope that today will help us. And it will challenge us to always keep this in the forefront of our mind as we look to uh, see the church grow, as we look to see people be taken care of. And so Paul gives five reasons why ministers should be compensated. So let's look at these reasons here in 7 through 14. Number one, he says that it's just common sense. Look at verse 7. He says, who goeth a warfare at any time in his own charges? Well, now that applies to us. How many of you went into the military and didn't expect to be paid something? Now, listen, I am thankful for every man who served in our military here in this room. Amen. Praise God. If you served in, in, in our military, thank you so much for your service and your sacrifice. And again, I'm betting you didn't go into the military because you're like, ooh, 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 I can't wait to get paid a lot. I can't wait to, to get hated by half the world because I wear the American flag on my shoulder. And similar guys, uh, men, women who served in the military, you know that this many times serving in the military is a thankless calling. And so Paul brings up the issue of warfare here, and he says, listen, it's common sense. Soldiers also get paid. They get compensated. So he uses this illustration of a soldier getting paid. And by the way, we need to take good care of our soldiers, don't we? Amen? We need to make sure that veterans are taken care of. Amen? And, and Paul lays out this principle here. But then he also brings up another illustration, or he uses the issue of farming. He says, who planted the vineyard and eateth not the fruit thereof? So he's like... You know, common sense says if a farmer grows his crops, then a farmer can pluck ears of corn from his crops, grapes, whatever kind of produce he's growing, and he can sell as much as he needs to, and he can survive and eat off as much as he needs to. And so he uses the illustration of farming. How many of you grew up on a farm? Raise your hand. My wife did. I love going back to the farm in Kansas and seeing what my father-in-law is growing this year. Some years it's soybeans, some years it's milo, and then some years on a rare occasion there's that sweet corn anyway um and so just common sense paul uses this illustration of military and of farming saying these guys labor and they get compensated for it and then he uses the illustration of a shepherd or it says or who feedeth a flock and eateth not the milk of the flock so paul's just laying out a principle here that says common sense says 
But the usual custom in all of life is, if you labor, you get paid for that labor. A soldier gets paid, a farmer gets his living from his farming, a shepherd gets cared for out of his occupation as well. So the first reason for Paul's defense of compensating ministers is, number one, uh, common sense. Number two, biblical principle. Look at verses 8 through 10. He says, Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? Now, I love what Paul does here. And, and this is great because, there, sadly, there are guys today who are saying, throw out all the Old Testament. It's not important. <clears throat> Wrong. The Old Testament was there for our learning, that we, through patience and confidence of the Scriptures, might have hope. They're the foundation for what Jesus was doing in the New Covenant and in the New Testament. And so I'm thankful for the Old Testament because Paul goes back here and he looks at a principle from the law of Moses. Look back at verse 9. He says, For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Does God take care for oxen? So Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 here. And he says, you wouldn't muzzle an ox who's treading out your corn from being able to bend over and nibble off a little bit of that corn while he's threshing it, while he's grinding it, would you? And so he's using a biblical principle here that was established all the way back in the Old Testament. Actually, the uh, Israelites got this even from the Egyptian people. And the Egyptians wouldn't muzzle their own ox that treads out the corn, which isn't that a fascinating thing. The world understands this, but sometimes we forget it because we think that somehow um, it's uber super spiritual to expect an ox to grind corn without bending over and eating sometimes. So he lays out this biblical principle here. He says, don't muzzle the ox. A person ought to earn his living out of his labor. When man gains his living from his labor, it has the potential of making his labor all the more diligent. Can you imagine if that ox was treading out the corn and he wasn't able to bend over and get what he needed for energy? That ox is not going to be able to labor as long. He's not going to be able to grind as much grain. And so we see these principles here. Paul's defending the right for him to be paid. He says, number one, it's common sense. Number two, it's a biblical principle. He even talks about this in verse 11. He says, um, he says, if we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we reap your carnal things? Basically, Paul's saying there, what's greater? Isn't spiritual greater? And if it is, then, then, then certainly carnal things, support, earthly needs, are worthy of our consideration. The third reason that Paul lays out here his defense for why ministers should be paid is the precedents that were already established. Look at verse 12. He says, if others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Yeah, I think he's um, alluding back to verse 5. Look back at verse 5. It says, have not we power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? So Paul says here, there, there's already a precedent where others were receiving financial support. Um. I think the reason Paul wasn't receiving support from the church of Corinth, there's several reasons, but one of those reasons was is the church of Corinth was primarily Gentile converts. There were some Jews because he alludes back to the Old Testament here. So there's, there, there was a mixed audience here of Jew and Gentile, of course, made one by the blood of Jesus and called the church. But there was a lot of Gentiles in this church, and Gentile culture of that time was not used to um, excuse me, uh, yes, Gentile culture was not used to a spiritual leader 
uh, getting support. Jewish people had grown up in a culture where they supported their priests, the Levites, the Pharisees, from their temple giving. And so you had uh, Peter and the other apostles whose primary ministry was to Jews. And so they were receiving support. But when Paul planted this church in Corinth, these people were primarily of a Gentile background. So they had not grown up in a culture where spiritual leaders were compensated. And if they were, they were coming out of, keep in mind, a pagan background where probably those pagan priests took advantage of them financially. So let's illustrate it this way. Let's say you're a business owner and you lead one of your coworkers to Christ tomorrow. And so you sat them down, you shared the gospel with them, and then immediately after praying for them to receive Christ, immediately afterwards you say, now, now that you're going to be a part of my uh, business more, we need you to give. The danger in that, if the Christian is new and they've not matured yet in their faith, is they put two and two together and they're like, oh, you were just leading me to Jesus so that you could get in the pocket. And so what Paul was cognizant of, what he was sensitive to, was going into a Gentile area where, if you remember several weeks ago, we talked about singleness and one of the reasons why people were probably leaning towards a single life, because there was evidently some distress, maybe a famine going on in this region of the world at that time. And so Paul, for probably several reasons, and many which we probably don't even know, but we can guess that it was probably a difficult time economically in that region of the world. These Gentiles weren't used to paying their spiritual leaders. If he led someone to Christ and then immediately started talking about giving, they would put two and two together and say, oh, you are just leading me to Jesus so that you could build yourself a nice nest egg. And so Paul lays this out, though, and he, and he talks about how there's already other leaders being supported. And so he's making the case for why it's okay to expect ministers to be supported. And then he alludes to the practice of the Levites. Verse 13. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. What's Paul saying here? He's saying it's always been God's way from the Old Testament that God's servants were supported by their calling. For example, a priest in the temple and people who were bringing offerings there in the Old Testament, they would bring the offering, and if you study all five of those offerings, in every one of those, the priests and the Levites would get a certain portion of those sacrifices. In some, they would get very little. In others, they would get quite a bit. And so there was this, this practice already established, and for sake of time, we're not going to go through all those sacrifices and, and share that with you. But if you want to study that more, you can look at Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 18, and you can read a little bit more about all those ways that the uh, temple priests and Levites were supported. So Paul's just making his case here. He's saying, listen, it's common sense. There's, there's, there's other callings in life where, where this occurs. It's a biblical principle. There's precedents already established. Other apostles, other spiritual leaders are compensated. And then he says, uh, we even see this pattern in the practice of the Levites. And then finally, the final reason that Paul gives here for why he has every right to expect compensation from the church is the statement of Jesus. Look at verse 14. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Now this verse has been mis misconstrued sometimes, but basically just what it means is, is if you preach the gospel, you should derive your living from the gospel. And evidently, Jesus alluded to this. And you might ask, well, where did he allude to this to? Probably Luke chapter 10, verse 7. 
Luke chapter 10, verse 7, and we're not going to look at that now. But Jesus there establishes this idea of if you preach the gospel, you are to receive your living from ministry in the gospel. So Paul lays out these reasons. Common sense, biblical principle, the precedents that were already established with Peter and other apostles, the practice of the Levites in the Old Testament, and the statement of Jesus. Now, what I find interesting in this is that even with Paul's, allude, uh, Paul's alluding back to the principles of the Old Testament, notice what he did say and notice what he didn't say. And notice the connection between the two as he brought it forward into the New Testament. Of course, over in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he's going to really talk more in depth about giving. But these are the reasons that Paul gave for why he had every right to expect financial support. So Paul defends his role as a church leader. He defends his right to be paid. He gives these reasons. <laughs> and then he says all that to say, but I'm not going to take any pay from you. Interesting. And he really meant it. It wasn't like he was, you know, giving all these reasons and saying, oh, no, but you don't have to. You know, he, he wasn't playing around. He was serious. In fact, we'll read here in verse... Uh, 18 and several other passages here that I have on the screen for you in just a moment. Paul is very serious about this. He was very sensitive to this issue. Paul established his right to be paid, but then notice he excludes that right. What was he talking about in chapter 8? You have every right to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but will love lead you to possibly exclude that right from you? Think about that. And so now he's using this own personal illustration. So verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 9, these are really the verses we want to finish on and just focus on for a few moments. He says, but I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be so done unto me. Just to be clear, Corinth, I didn't list all these reasons so that you should do that for me. And notice how serious he was. For it were better for me to die than for any man should make my glorying void. Paul dealt with a lot of naysayers. Huh. Yeah, a lot of leaders do, both political but most importantly spiritual. And Paul dealt with his share of naysayers, people who were coming at him, and I'm sure that part of it was criticism of him going into these places, and maybe he did take pay at, at first, we don't know. But then he developed this principle that when he goes to plant a church, he wants to plant that church without any fear that people would misunderstand his motives behind why he was planting the church. Paul says, I would rather die than to have this accusation brought to my doorstep. So, while I have every right to expect compensation from you, Corinth, and while other ministers do get compensated for their work in, in, in the ministry... I'm going to remain a tent maker. Verse 16. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. This was a calling. This was a calling. You know, for pastors, some days, the only thing that gets you through that day in ministry is your calling. But then there's those days, and I think this is why Paul mentioned these people in Scripture. 
But then there were thing, people that would come along and refresh him. And they would serve alongside him. And they would be involved in the work of the ministry with him. And so this was a difficult calling. I mean, this was a calling that weighed heavy upon him, as you can see by the language here. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Verse 17. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. This was a spiritual responsibility and a calling, a life's calling for Paul. Maybe one of the tests we should ask ourselves is this. Think about your own job. Just think about your own job for a second, your own occupation. How many of you are gainfully employed? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you are looking to be gainfully employed? Let's pray for you. Yes, absolutely. Um, imagine if you walked into church. Imagine if you walked into your office tomorrow and your boss said, I'm so glad to see you at work today. I can't wait to go through this eight or maybe 12-hour day if you're Brothers Johnson. He works half day, six to six, right, Rodney? But imagine tomorrow if, if, if employees walked into Rodney's business and Rodney's like, yeah, I can't wait to work this half day with you, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and we're not going to pay you anything. Rodney, how many employees would you still have there by lunch? Not too many. How many of you would work at your secular job for free? But what is Paul saying here? He's saying, this calling is so important to me that I would do it for nothing if I had to. And of course, in this situation at Corinth, he had to. Now, here's what's interesting. There were other churches that supported Paul. The church of Macedonia. Do you remember how he uh, pointed them out in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9? He says, man, they gave out of their poverty and he received that gift from them. So it wasn't that Paul never received financial compensation, but in this situation, in, and I believe it's in the churches that he planted. So why did we just have a missions month where we presented to you missionaries who were worthy of our support financially? Because when they go to plant those churches, we don't want them having to share the gospel with somebody and then turn right around and say, oh yeah, by the way, we need you to support us financially. Because in many cultures in this world, that would confuse the gospel. It would question missionaries' motivations. And so we as churches, we support missionaries so that they can go to the field and not worry about financial support for several, perhaps many, many years. And so Paul, as a missionary, there were certain areas of the world where he would not, although he had the right, he did not and would not receive any financial compensation from them. In several verses here, you can see over in 1 Corinthians 4, 11 and 12, he he alludes to this. He says, Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. Paul wasn't sure where he was going to sleep at night. That's how destitute at times they were. And labor, working with our hands, being reviled. Can you imagine going into your work tomorrow and them telling you, oh yeah, you're not going to get any pay, and then on top of that, we're going to revile you. Again, I'm not sure if we see our occupation that much as a calling. But there is a calling to things as God calls us spiritually to serve him in ministry. He says, being reviled, being reviled, we bless. Do you know how hard it is sometimes? Well, not sometimes. Do you know how hard it is all the time to bless someone who's reviled you? It's not easy. Being persecuted, 
we suffer for it. Acts 20, 34, he says, Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. What's Paul saying? He's saying, I ministered to my own needs with my own hands. For Thessalonians 2, 9, over to the churches of Thessalonia, he, he said, For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Wow. 2 Thessalonians 3.8, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So you're saying Paul as a preacher didn't even receive a free meal? That's what this verse is saying. We wrought with labor and travail night and day that we not, might not be chargeable to any of you. Again, in these Gentile cultures, money many times was their God. And number two, there would have been a confusion of motivations as Paul led people to Christ. Now, down the road as this church matured, one of the signs of growing in grace is what? Generosity, giving. And so for churches that were established, churches that had been taught, yes, they go and, and they grow and they become a giver and they serve and they invest in the church, both with their finances, but even more importantly, they give their heart to the ministry. They're there. They're going to be through the good times and the bad times. It's not just a consumer-based relationship. It's a covenant with brothers and sisters in Christ. It says in 2 Corinthians eleven nine, 9, he says, and when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. So Paul said this over and over throughout his epistles. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied, and in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. And so Paul says, it's better for me to die. I would rather be dead than to be accused of being in ministry for greedy gain. That's literally what Paul is saying here in verses 15 through 18. He's saying, I'm not a prophet for hire. I'm not a hireling. I'm your shepherd. I'm your under shepherd. And so Paul states this, but then in other areas, Paul would say things like, let them that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. So so Paul lays out the rights, why he should expect to be compensated. But then he says, I'm not going to. We don't know all the reasons for why he didn't. I've tried to give you a little bit of an insight. But regardless of all the situations surrounding why Paul didn't receive compensation, evidently in his heart and mind, there was something that would have hindered the gospel or hindered Paul's freedom, and perhaps that's even a bigger one, would have hindered Paul's freedom to preach the gospel if he was paid by them. You know one of the biggest challenges for ministers of the gospel today is? To preach the truth of the gospel and realize that people could leave their church, affect the finances. And so you know what pastors do? You know what the temptation is? Let's not rock the boat. Let's keep everybody happy. Let's not tell people that, that uh, the gospel is really that good because then we'll remove our forms of manipulation and control on the people. We won't be able to fear them into giving. What about being graced into giving? What about being overwhelmed? I mean, imagine if someone was to call you up tomorrow. I love this illustration, I heard it this week. Imagine if someone was to call you up tomorrow and pay off your house mortgage. How many would be like, that'd be a good deal. That'd be a blessing, hallelujah, <laughs> that'd be great. I can see it now. I'm free, free. Anyway, um, I'm going to guess that if a person did that for you tomorrow, you're going to probably want to establish a relationship with them. 
Not because you have to, but because you want to. Why? Because they just showed you their love for you. And you're going to end up wanting to, and I love this phrase, we hear it a lot in our culture today, you're going to want to pay it forward. You're going to want to take what someone has invested into you and pay it forward. So Paul, this is a beautiful passage of scripture and it really does. I mean, it really does bring out on display the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 8, he says, we have freedom, but sacrifice our rights to help others grow. He says, hey, you've got freedom to eat that meat, but, but perhaps God's calling you to sacrifice that right to eat that meat so that another Christian doesn't stumble and be offended. 1 Corinthians 9, he says something similar. He says, we have freedom, but we sacrifice our rights for the gospel. A little bit of a difference, but pretty much the same. And here's, here's, a, here's a summary of that. We have great freedom, but we're called to sacrifice our rights for the growth of others, chapter 8, and for the sake of the gospel, chapter 9. So here's my question. What freedoms and rights do we have that we sacrifice for the growth of others and for the sake of the gospel? God calls us to make sacrifices in our life. He calls us to adjust many things. One of those could be methods in ministry, ways that we've always done things. Why? So that others can grow for the sake of the gospel, vice versa. Certainly, finances is, is a part of this discussion today. The last time we were in 1 Corinthians 8, we were talking about liberties. I am so thankful for the liberty and the freedom that I have in Christ. But I do ask myself, if I really have that and I've really gotten that message, then where am I currently limiting freedom? Where am I currently sacrificing for the sake of the gospel? That's a question that I hope all of us will ponder 